This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we've packed a number of shows together to give you some highlights. I know you're going to enjoy the show. Thank you for being with us today. Our guest is Hans Box. Thanks for being on the show, Hans. Thanks for having me, Whitney. Hans is a principal of Box Wilson Equity and a senior director at Old Capital Lending, a top mortgage broker in Texas. As a sponsor, he has created 12 private equity funds with his business partner, together Box Wilson Equity, a $30 million in equity placed. Hans has personally been directly involved in the acquisition, investment, and management of over $350 million in multifamily and self-storage assets and has asset managed 3,700 multifamily units and has invested in or had equity in 4,300 multifamily units and 2,000 units of cell storage. Hans, it's incredible to have you on the show and get to meet you. Just talking to you a little bit, uh, your background just has put you in a position to be so experienced and, and have such a wide knowledge base of this business. But I'm going to let you fill that in a little bit for the listeners. But welcome to the show. Give us a little more about your background and let's, let's jump into your superpower. Sure, sure. So quick background, I am a CPA by trade. I went to went to a school here in Texas and got a master's in accounting and did the whole route through the W-2 going to get a job with one of the big four accounting firms at PricewaterhouseCoopers. I was there for a number of years, probably nine or 10 years. And then right after the Great Recession, I decided to take a risk and get into multifamily. So I went from a basic six-figure job salary to not much at all to go partner with a with another individual in the DFW area to fix his accounting and and his payback to me was he's going to mentor me in account and multifamily at the time I'd already bought rent home so I kind of had gotten a flavor of it but this was the huge step into going full time into real estate worked with him for 2 or 3 years got invested in a couple of his deals long story short and this is probably where my greatest learning experience ever occurred is and in the first deal I got involved with with him where I put 100,000 of my own money into it which at, at the time was basically my net worth i mean it was probably a little bit less but not much i didn't have much more beyond that i cashed out my ira to do it and i got involved with him in that deal and long story short He's a good sales guy, but he's not a great operator. Mm. And we actually, myself, and now my current business partner, but at the time he was just a fellow investor, uh, got voted in by the other investors to basically take over the deal and and kind of take control. Wow. Yeah. So, and anyway, I was green. I was very green. So I was literally sitting in the upstairs office of a class C property in Dallas, you know, trying to run the budget and work on getting the thing turned around. We, we managed to hire a management company that we've been pushing for and she helped turn it around. So, and at the time we, you know, we, we turned it around about a year, year and a half. And, you know, when we took it over, we were going to lose money if we sold it. And then when we sold it, we made about a 24% gain, which isn't great when you think about it, but considering we were negative equity, it was a good turn for us. And we sold it for a record price in the submarket at that time. Now, and that was 37,000 a unit to give you an idea that deal probably sells for a hundred grand a unit right now in Dallas. But it got me started with number one, it, it, I met my business partner and we synced really well. We worked well together. Together, We're both analytical. He's an engineer. He went to Stanford, Northwestern. So he's way smarter than me. But we worked together well. And it also established a base set of investors that were confident in us after seeing save their 
investments. And that's how we got started in the, in, in the syndication model because we weren't really planning to work together after that. But then they started asking us, hey, you guys can do another deal? And we're like, yeah, maybe. And then we started thinking through it and, and it just kind of took off from there. Nice. So that's an incredible experience. I'm so thankful that it turned out the way that it did. Could have been so much worse. Uh, (laughs) Wow. It's incredible that you took that leap. And I'm sure you you received some pushback potentially from family or friends. Hans, what are you thinking? You know, you've done all this work, all this school, all this time invested into this career, right? This corporate career. I usually ask people, you know, it's made that transition because I know there's listeners that are wanting to do the same thing. Sure. What gave you the confidence to do that? How did you handle the pushback or maybe some, you know, negativity from friends or family? So the reason for it, I know I'll answer, answer your question two parts. The reason for it is when I saw the recession hit and I saw individuals and employees getting laid off in other industries and other companies, Pricewaterhouse actually didn't lay off anyone. They're very good about keeping talent aboard and then and then trying to tread water until because they don't want to lose talent. It costs a lot of money to get talent back. And so I wasn't really worried at the time about losing my job, but I saw that and I saw the the risk that could happen, you know, if this happened again. And I didn't want to depend on a W-2. And at the time I was married, but no kids and not many obligations. You know, I was living cheaply. So I was like, you know, if I don't do this right now and take this jump, I may number one, regret it. And number two, I might get golden handcuffs, you know, in the, in the next five years and not be able to leave just because you couldn't bring yourself to give up. You know, once you get to a certain level at those firms, you can make pretty good money, but you're also working 70 hours a week, right? So I was like, I've got to do it now or I'll, I might get stuck. And so that was my main reason for doing it. And as far as pushback, I, my parents were very supportive. I didn't get much pushback at all. And my wife was very supportive as well. So I'll have to say, I didn't have to overcome any pushback. One thing I did have to overcome is she also started law school at the same time and took on debt to do it. And at the same time, I gave up my higher paying job. So it was a, we suddenly were living on rice and beans as, as they would say. So, you know, I literally was unplugging my plasma TV that was in my condo to save on electricity. I was doing everything possible to save money. So that was probably the hardest part of it for a while. Wow. No, that's incredible. I love hearing stories like that because I know it helps encourage the listener as well that's like approaching that decision or working through that. It's not easy, that's for sure, but so so worth it when you can make it happen like you have. Well, I know, you know, from your background, just and, and I want to get into lending a little bit or the current lending market and situation. But on another note, just from your level of experience as a CPA, but then also you are getting to see so many deals, you're getting to see so many sponsors, how they underwrite and, and you know, you've become an expert, no doubt, in underwriting, you know, and analyzing sponsors' deals, you know, as as active operator, but then also as a passive. And I thought you could just speak to vetting a deal or vetting a sponsor in probably much more detail, you know, than a lot of people for that passive investor that's listening right now. Sure, sure. Good question. There's a lot to vetting these deals. And I'm going to speak multifamily. That's what we're speaking. But this can really be applied to any commercial real estate investment. There's quite a few things. I mean, number one, you have to you have to understand general terms like cap rates, what a waterfall is, what a preferred return is, things like that. And once you once you get that base knowledge, which you can get on the internet in, in half a day, I think the number one thing you have to do is you need to be able to bet the sponsor. To me, the jockey, as you'd put it, is the most important part of a deal. A, you know, a good sponsor can turn a bad deal into a good deal, and a bad sponsor 
that can buy a great deal and destroy it. I've seen it happen. In fact, I was in one, obviously. So I think vetting the sponsor is number one. And one of the biggest things I look for with a sponsor is transparency. I, I tend to ask a lot of questions about the deal just to make sure I understand that they're, what their goals are and their strategy is. And the sponsors that I feel most comfortable investing with are the ones that answer my questions fully and don't try to, you know, try to get around it or, or are brief in their response. They, they give me a comprehensive answer and that will actually share their performer with me. I've, you know, I'll be honest, I've had sponsors that I thought were pretty good, but they wouldn't share their performance. So I could really dive into the numbers and see how everything was calculating because they told me it was proprietary. I'm like, it's an Excel spreadsheet for a multifamily deal. There's nothing proprietary about a, about an underwriting for a, for, for a deal. So I think, uh, you know, your listeners should just look for sponsors that are open, transparent, answer your questions, aren't offended by your questions, because that's what we do with our, we have quite a few investors that are, that dig in pretty deep to our, our deals. And we answer every question. We jump on the phone if we need to, and, and we make sure that they understand what they're getting into. Another important thing with a sponsor is you need to make sure that they can articulate the true value add component of the deal. If there's not a value add component, you shouldn't be investing in the deal. There always should be a value add component. I don't like the term yield play. There needs to be that margin of safety between what you bought it at and the equity you can force to protect your your investment. And so always look for a value add component and have the sponsor clearly articulate that. But that's probably the most important thing about vetting a deal. I mean, I could certainly get into the legal stuff. I mean, I I also can get very detailed into the uh, operating agreements. Are you about to start a podcast or producing a podcast and tired of doing the editing yourself? We have produced over 1,000 daily shows and the production team that I've created, they're now available to produce shows for you as well. We can do as little or as much as you need from finding and communicating with guests, preparing introductions, to editing the audio and video. You will sound better, have a more professional presence, and be able to spend your time doing other valuable tasks on your business. Let me know you're interested by emailing me directly at Whitney at LifeBridgeCapital.com. Our guest is Nick Moore. Thanks for being on the show, Nick. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Nick is a commercial real estate and corporate attorney located in Atlanta, Georgia. Having assisted clients with multi-millions in real estate deals, Nick guides his clients from the inception of the deal to post-close business matters and everything in between. Nick is also a general partner in commercial real estate and has assisted in the formation of private equity funds, limited partnerships, syndications, debt securities, and corporate structure revisions to accomplish his clients' complex objectives. In 2020, Nick was selected by Super Lawyers as a Georgia rising star for the areas of corporate and business, which is reserved for the top 2.5% of attorneys in the practice area. When he's not taking down deals with his clients, he enjoys hiking, golfing, spending time with his church, and staying active in his faith. Nick, welcome to the show. Grateful for your time. Knowing somebody like yourself is a must for anyone in our business. And I think you know whether you're a sponsor or whether you're just a passive investor, 
you need somebody like yourself on your team. So thank you again for your time. Get us started with a little bit of who you are, what you do specifically in commercial real estate. I know we highlighted it a little bit, but then we're going to jump into just your superpower and take maybe the listener through just that transactional timeline and some pitfalls and things like that to help prevent them. For sure. And thank you for the introduction. That was so close to what I do that you would have thought I wrote it. So yeah, absolutely. appreciate it. Yeah, I got started in commercial real estate 2012, working on McDonald's deals. And then just rising up from there, just started doing the multifamily assets, picked that up, do the closing, all the contract work. I work with the GPs and the LPs as well. So when we're talking syndications, obviously our GP is a general partnership. Those are the guys running the deal. LPs, of course, are our investors. Kind of got my feet wet a little bit doing some contract work for another larger law firm and just picked up the material. Really loved the clients. Everyone just gets so excited about income producing real estate and specifically the multifamily that it was really just contagious. And there's nothing like being a lawyer and having your clients with good spirits. I do some litigation as well and have had some success with that. And it's a little bit different. It's adversarial. Tensions run high. The clients already think they're right before they even bring it to you. So you have to do everything you can to prove them right while someone's trying to prove you wrong. But with the commercial real estate, it's just so easy to enjoy it and to know that you're building and that you're in some form or fashion, incidentally, providing security to your clients' families. People are sometimes in it for wealth. Some are in it for security for their families, whether it's passive and using the money that they've made in their career and parlaying that into a better opportunity. And there is no better opportunity than multifamily real estate, self-storage, and these other income-producing assets. And so I serve as general counsel as well externally to quite a number of companies. It gives me the opportunity to go through these contracts that I do on a daily basis. And then again, my litigation experience, I know how to phrase these things to avoid litigation or to prepare for some contingency that's going to help you out and, and something that we wouldn't have to get into a big dispute about. I can just point to the language and say, hey, here's obviously the intent. And that's just been a tremendous value, number one, for my GPs. Now, on the LP side, I've been able to review PPMs, other agreements there, and tell them, you know, kind of here's what the group can do, here's what you can't do, here's your rights, here's how your waterfalls work, et cetera. So just getting in and mixing up the deals, you know, like I said, just kind of fall in love with the subject matter. Fast forward here, you know, almost geez, six or seven years of doing this on a daily basis. No, that's awesome. I've had different LPs or passive investors ask me about, well, should I have you know, an attorney review the PPM or those documents? And I've had some LPs mention that like they've asked an attorney to review it and they won't on the LP side. And I thought it's interesting. Is there something about that that the LP needs to know about or why maybe one attorney wouldn't do that for them versus another one like yourself? Yeah, of course. It's a great question. And I don't want to speculate as to what it, you know individual right. attorneys would opine. And I know you weren't asking me that. But if anybody tells you that you shouldn't consult an attorney, that's the end of the advice from that individual. Hands down. Okay. <laughs> that's where you go. Thank you very much. And then digress to a different topic. Why they wouldn't review the PPM is because, A, they may not understand it. We're talking about a 150-page thereabout document that is very content-specific. The implications of the language can vary in terms of how do you earn your money? 
What's the preferred yeah. return look like? What's the waterfall? What are these hurdles? What's the success fee on the front end? What's the divestment fee on the back end? Can I get my units back? These different things that if you don't work on it on the front end transactionally, it's going to look like Greek to right. review it and, and try and describe this. And then the other thing is, is charging for that. I think sometimes attorneys actually shy away from work when they find it difficult to determine how to bill it. So what I do for LPs is I give them 90 minutes. I bill at a particular rate. So I'll give you an hour and a half. And that gives me enough time to go through this PPM comfortably. I'm not scrolling through, you know, of course I know what to look for. I was going to say you're familiar enough that you know what to look for. It's not some other attorney that maybe has a different specialty that this is kind of out of their wheelhouse. You know, it's like asking the knee surgeon to perform brain surgery, right? You know, <laughs> look at the brain scan. You know, that's kind of what it is. It's, yeah. it's not so much even the surgery as much as like, hey, check out this slide. And you're like, well, I'm used to looking at knees, you know, <laughs> but let right, me take a right. look at that. You're exactly well, right. Let's jump into the transactional timeline. I want us to be able to hit that before we run out of time. Go through that timeline. I'd love for you to, you know, just highlight some pitfalls and how to prevent them, you know, thinking through that, the transactional timeline of purchasing commercial property. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously you want to start with the LOI, right? That's our letter of intent. When you go and you find interest and you underwrite a deal and you want to make an offer on it, you want to put some terms in the LOI that are not going to be such a surprise once we go to execute the PSA. That's going to shorten the timeline of executing the PSA. So you're not, hey, I had no idea you're going to ask for these things in due diligence or that you wanted these timelines with the inspection period or due diligence and the financing period or closing or extensions and some of these other things. So my LOIs, very comprehensive, have a lot of that in it so they know what to expect. So when I go ahead and release the PSA for red lines, there's very little to red line, okay? The LOI is accepted and it's signed. The PSA is submitted. So the timeline should look like this, ideally, okay? Your inspection period is historically about 30 days. I've seen a little bit less. I've seen a little bit more. Sometimes the buyer wants more. Sometimes the seller wants less. You just have to negotiate that. But you don't want the inspection period to start at the effective date of the PSA because that's really the date of execution. The inspection period should really begin when you receive all the documents that you've requested, right? Because you don't want to have a 30-day timeline that runs from signature and then 21 days later, you're still waiting on a T12 to evaluate the expenses on the property or operating statements or insurance loss runs or whatever you need as part of your due diligence. So we typically put in my critical dates checklist, the date on which we received all of those documents. And then 30 calendar days and calendar and business days, obviously an important distinction. Typically it's calendar days, 30 calendar days from then would be the end of the due diligence period. Now, I also like to put in a little qualifier there for a property approval notice. Okay. And the property approval notice has to be an affirmative document or communication from us to them at their notice. You put the property approval notice in there to let them know, hey, we reviewed all the documents. We're going to proceed. Now, most often, okay, the seller is going to want the property to be sold as is. So once you provide that property approval notice, you kind of waive your issues with any of the documents that you receive in due diligence up until that point. Now, if you have reps and warranties, there's certain things that you can put in there. If you know that there may be an issue with the roof, the laundry room, unit 12, you know, these other things you want to put in there that can continue past inspection, make sure that they are responsible for some of the things that you addressed in due diligence. So let's say you went and did a, the, either in an appraisal or you went and toured the property and you found some patent defects, things that are noticeably 
issues. You want to bring those up and make sure that those survived the inspection period and that they didn't merge in with the property approval notice. The reason that's important is historically the earnest money that you put down, which is give or take 1% of the purchase price, goes hard typically at the end of the inspection period. So once I submit that property approval notice, money goes hard, you're not getting it back. You got to go do your financing, find your lender, get all that, and then do your syndication, PPMs, all that jazz. Okay. Now, one of the things that we've done of late, particularly in the COVID era, is try to make the earnest money not go hard until the end of financing. Because it's been so difficult to get financing, whether through Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, conventional even, don't really recommend SBA high fees. So everybody just, you know, I'm not going to knock the, the SBA. It can be useful, but I don't think it should be option number one in my experience. That being said, earnest money doesn't go hard until the end of financing. Now, financing will either historically run concurrent with the inspection period and a lot of times will run beginning on the effective date, okay? But if you want to, you can work it in there because it's a negotiating point, as all these are, okay? You want to put your financing period about 60 days from the expiration of the inspection period. That's going to give you enough time to work with the bank. Nobody's feeling the pressure. You're not going to lose out on earnest money and you're not going to have to contribute more money under the extension. Because a lot of times what you'll work into the deal is the option to extend the closing. Historically, I've done a quarter of a percent of the purchase price put into escrow. Again, it's non-refundable because at that point, we've already moved out of the due diligence period. Okay. Now, it still can be, but that would be put into escrow and applied for the purchase price later down the road. But that's the consideration for the extension. Any option is basically a new contract that you're exercising has to be scored by consideration. So you have to have a dollar value on that. Okay. But you put in there, okay. if you know on the front end kind of what the terms you want in finance, and you go ahead and put those down in the PSA and say, hey, we're looking for something in the 5% interest rate range. We want a 25-year amortization. We want a 10-year note, balloon payment, three years interest only. And try and put that in there to give yourself that opportunity that, hey, if you don't get it, you can back out of the deal and get your earnest money back. I have fortunately never lost earnest money with a client. Yeah, and I've also, in litigation, had people bring me issues where they probably should have lost their earnest money. I was able to get it back. Okay, so just be very careful. You don't want to wager one percent of three million dollars, which is thirty grand, on not knowing what, what's going on, oversight on certain timelines. So the financing contingency is very important. Now, what I do to hedge on costs is I don't go and file any of the registrations or any of these things until we get enough into the financing period that we've obtained the financing from the lender. Then we can start discussing the PPMs and getting your operating agreements and registering these entities that have a, a fixed cost on them as well. And so those measures together are going to create a safe environment for you to go take your deal down. There's a plenty of outs and it's very easy to point to the language. A lot of times, last point on it, the earnest money is typically held by a third-party escrow. Well, they can't release that earnest money without consent from both sides. I like to hold my clients' investor funds because I'm not subject to that full-party consent. And if something goes south, I don't want them holding the investor's funds and have a derivative action or a direct action come against my client. I'll just go ahead and release that back to the investors, or I can at least report to them, hey, I'm counsel on this. We have your funds. We are working through some issues on the PSA. I'm either going to hold it until we resolve that, or I'm just going to go ahead and return it to you, and then we can work through the issues on the PSA. 
Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today. 